let's welcome our guest in the Bad Faith Dome, Matt Brunig of, what's he of? He's of the People's Policy Project, right. a think tank. Mm-hmm. He's of a podcast uh, creatively called The Brunigs. That's right. Those are my two and things. Those are his two <laughs> things. He posts also. Mm-hmm. And of a Twitter account. <laughs> so Matt, I was just asking you to remind me what everyone was mad at you about most recently because I've forgotten <laughs> because you do have regularly deleting tweets. I was about to say that I think there should be some kind of um, algorithm, like a formula that says it's not just that I think that I'm among the most hated but there, I feel like there's a, a special brand of people who will kind of have disproportionate amount of hate. Right? So mm-hmm. there, are, there are known trolls who kind of ask, well, I'm not going to say they ask for it, but they, they court a certain amount of controversy. Mm-hmm. And then sure, there's right. people like, I feel like your wife is high among those who are just like the nicest and get, right, yeah. you know, it's not that she has the worst mentions, but compared to how nice and kind of wholesome her content is, it's particularly distressing. Right. Yeah. She's not trolling. She's not trying to get, not typically trying to get a whole bunch of, you know, angry responses, but she gets them anyways. Right. And I'm not saying I'm Liz here because that's like God tier internet niceness, but I would like to think of myself as in the orbit well, of people who are getting what they don't necessarily deserve because I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm a sweetie. You are nice. You and Liz are both nice. But Liz isn't, you know, a total Ned Flanders. Liz, Liz can 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 bear her fangs at times. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I agree. But what, what Liz gets online is not commensurate with how she acts, because Liz will just like post a picture of herself playing with her kids, and the responses will be like, "This is disgusting." <laughs> it's like, what are you? What is wrong with you people? I think it's it's something about. It's a lot of how social media is broken everyone's brain here. But I think when Liz posts stuff like that, like just like wholesome content, people take it as a personal affront. Mm. They, they, they're, they they're, they're aggressive. Yeah, they think it's encoded with, with some kind of subtle message that's also aimed directly at them. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, th- this is showing you up or accusing you of something. In re- reality, it's just like, oh, here's a cute picture and you guys might like it. And I sure would like some faves. <laughs> like, I don't agree with Liz on uh, uh, procreation. I remember the, the whole procreation debate. That you're we all a- you're anti-procreation, week, but... Virgil. I'm anti-procreation. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look at me. I'm anti-procreation. Come on. <laughs> and I don't agree with her on it, but when I see her like talk about her kids and how much she wants to have more kids and all this stuff, I don't get mad about it because I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just normal. Maybe my brain just works fine. Or maybe I just haven't developed a weird parasocial, negative parasocial relationship with Liz. So I'm guessing that's, you know, that's at the root of people disliking Liz. I guess the hate you get, Bree, is not commensurate with what you do online either. No. Matt, however, I think the hate you get is commensurate with how you <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think no, you no, get... No. Ge- yeah, you I definitely yeah. throw shit out there. I mean, even just like other, even not non-political stuff, like sports stuff, you know, just to try to stir stuff up. <laughs> So I'm okay with it, you know? I mean, as long as it stays within normal <laughs> bounds, I'm okay, I'm okay with, with the negative mentions. At some point in this past week, that it was that you made one side of the argument and then you made the other side of the argument and then the same people were mad at you both ways. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what no, was yeah, that? No, yeah, yeah, no. So the way it worked was, you know, I was saying we need child benefits to, you know, fight child right. poverty. And then there was a response that was like really upset at this and saying, no, you know, if parents had higher wages, then we wouldn't need those benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we should focus on the on the workers and, and their wages. And so then I made the opposite argument and said, 
to fight disabled poverty, we don't need disability benefits. We just need to increase the wages of people who live with disabled people. <laughs> um, and then that got a very negative reaction. But of course, you know, these are the same basic, same structure of, of a problem. <laughs> but, but different, you know, approaches to each gets gets very hated reactions. So. Yeah, I remember people getting very upset. I vaguely, I, re I remember this and I remember like all of this kind of stemming from a, an incorrect reading of what you literally wrote. But I think, I mean, I would guess at the root of this, uh, of this, you know, another toxic internet debate, I guess at the, at the root of the opposition to your standpoint is the idea that fairness dictates that people with children not receive particular benefits. Mm -hmm. That's the root of it. They, they think that's unfair. <laughs> We want equality. We want every. We want wages to be to be equalized. But if you have kids, you know, you, you know, you got to pay for that yourself. Yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting. It's an interesting question, right? Are the kids? Do you think of the kids as a person who is like part of the egalitarian calculus? Like, well, th those are people. So if we're going to divide things equally, they're they're in the denominator, you know, of that. Or do you think of them as like appendages of their parents, and so they're they're really not like in the denominator in the same way that like a pet is not in the denominator. Yeah, I mean, that's another one where people just get so mad about it, they get angry to a level that's not really commensurate with the actual thing being discussed. Because as, you know, as we've established, I'm against procreation, but I also don't take this this weird Scrooge view that, oh, if you have children, well, that's your fault. They should not be taken care of. Well, there's so much um, a conservative discourse. And when I talk about conservatives, I mean conservatives on both sides of the political aisle about how important it is to have children and how we should be gearing our politics towards supporting families. Obviously, the right wingers are on this whole like the end of white people box, you know, speech box where they're very, very concerned about lowering, lower, lower birth rates among the good kinds of humans. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, we have all of the kind of welfare reform hand wringing uh, about don't have children unless you can take care of them. These are your responsibility, unwed mothers, blah, blah, blah. But those things are obviously intention, right? We want to support these people. It's good. And it's obviously racialized in this very specific way. But I find myself particularly salty as a childless person who finds like all of that, that that's a part and parcel of the animus that's driving the anti um, payoff student debt rhetoric, right? It's like mm -hmm. everybody wants to give um, cash injections to the people. We need a stimulus. We need trickle down economics in every other circumstance in the world, but not when it comes to student debt. And also there's this feeling that childless people should be like very, very happy to pay for social programs for people with children, which I absolutely am. But the idea that as a non-childless person, that, that every single person, let me, let me just say it this way. There are obviously social benefits that people take advantage of or benefit them. And then other groups of people don't benefit. And somehow when it's children, there's an expectation that childless people should be happy to pay for it, which again, I am. But when it's the other way around and people who haven't gone to college or have, weren't able to go to college because they couldn't afford it, we shouldn't remedy those kinds of financial failings. And it just feels like people can't decide what they actually think about helping people. It's definitely under-theorized. I, I would say a lot of this stuff is very under-theorized. And, you know, I guess that's the nature of, like, coalitional politics. People, like, pick up an issue and it kind of gets absorbed and no one does the dirty work of, like, well, how do all these pieces fit together into a coherent theory where I can say, yep, money goes there but not there. And, uh, you know, it, it gets a little bit dicey when you start trying to do that. 
is it under theorized or is this just is this just the way the discourse is in the past 50 years since the right word turn in this country, which also was a rhetorical turn, this idea that I'm paying for you. That, that any kind of entitlement that only would, would go to a specific group, whether it's senior citizens, uh, whether it's the, the, the physically disabled, whether it's uh, people with children, children, people with student loans, whatever. Isn't that just the right wing framing that will you know, lead us to oppose any kind of social spending that, uh, you know, maybe. to say that, you know, I shouldn't have to pay for this? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, for sure. Like just general opposition to social spending is a, is a right wing development. People take particular positions on particular policies for lots of weird reasons that might relate to, you know, how they feel about the group. Right. So if you're maybe not so hot on uh, parents uh, or breeders, <laughs> as uh, they're sometimes called, then uh, maybe, you, you know, you start to feel negatively about that. And if you have this view that, well, students, you know, they're elites, they're, you know, they went to uh, liberal arts school in, you know, some private ritzy liberal arts school, you know, fuck those people, then, you know. And that is rooted perhaps ultimately in like reactionary sentiment is very, it, to think specifically about the identities of the people you don't like and specifically like their cultural characteristics or racial characteristics or whatever. Yeah. I'm saying it's the idea that I'm paying for it. That I, as, as an atomized taxpayer, you know, like I have to foot the bill for all of this and that it's all a kind of zero sum game. So if I get the least in entitlements, then I'm paying the most. That theory of wealth mm. is, you know, at, at the root of it, that's a right wing conception. And that's something that, you know, I think we, we get trapped in this this kind of zero sum rhetoric. Mm. To that point, we have our future president tweeting today. My dad used to say, Joey, I don't expect the government to solve my problems, but I expect it to understand my problems. Folks out there aren't looking for a handout. They just need help. They're in trouble through no fault of their own, and they need us to understand. Is that what dad people need? In your professional capacity uh, as a think tank haver, Matt Brunig, is that what people need? Is that they need understanding? I mean, you know, that might be true of some people. <laughs> there definitely are people who have problems uh, that really they just need like someone to uh, recognize and bear witness to. And that seems yeah, to like be the people like... in Liz's mentions. <laughs> like, they clearly need a friend who's going to listen to their problems. Right. He's all, also tying in the coronavirus, I think, there, mm -hmm. right? Because he's saying no fault of their own. That's a reference to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, in that context, I mean, what... What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you want to understand, I need you to understand that I don't have money because I don't have a job because of the pandemic, but I don't need you to give me money, right? I mean, right. it's such a bizarre, bizarre position to take in this context where like overwhelming government, like movement is what's the only way to like dig out of it. You yeah. Know? I, what's a hand? What's a hand? What's a handout? What, what is a handout? What define handout to me? First of all. You know, I actually, well, I think... You know, I, again, it's probably not well theorized, but I think the way you could divide handouts and hand ups is you've got on the one hand projects or, or, or policies that would just provide people things like healthcare, education, uh, money for, you know, whether they're elderly or have children or paid leave or whatever. Right. And so it's just like they're directly the government just like gives you the money or gives you the resource. And then the, the hand up thing is the government gives you a little, maybe a little bit of resource, but the idea is for you to ultimately increase your market income 
And then that's how you like solve the final problem. So like that's been the fixation or was the fixation about, I don't know, 10 years ago, it seems to have faded a little bit, um, at least in like the think tank world with education reform, right? Is to say, well, we're going to solve poverty, not by just like supplying the poor with cash and now they're not poor, but we're going to give them a way to get cash through the market by making them more educated so that they can get better jobs and so on and so forth, right? So that, I, I think that's how it, how it goes. I respectfully disagree, or rather I take a, a different framing of this. I think it's a libidinal fixation. I think it's a, a fundamentally, it's, it's a sadistic idea that you can't just have a handout which is, you know, just an unequivocal, good, pleasurable thing that comes with no strings attached and no, no uh, uh, contribution from you. Uh, you. What you need is a hand up, which is something that g- embedded within that is an obligation, an obligation to mm-hmm. suffer in some fashion. Mm-hmm. A hand up is, okay, you know, you have to do the work. Even if, it's to- even if it doesn't matter, even if money isn't real and it's totally irrational, uh, no, you still have to suffer or waste your time or do busy work or whatever the hell just so you can continue to exist. Yeah, it's like this idea that if you were to give someone money outright or if people didn't have to labor, that your belief of what natural human instincts are means that everyone just sit around playing computer games all day and that you have to basically task people with things because if they got too much too easily it would somehow end innovation and end art and end creativity nothing good would happen in the world anymore it's funny you say video games because that's what i think 90 percent of the entrepreneurship today is is starting a (laughs) twitch stream (laughs) like that's where all that's what that's what that's what the economy is now you don't know how much money goes around in little bits on twitch Like this is how we're getting the money back from you know losing our manufacturing base, putting that overseas. Is 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 just uh, the Chinese teenagers just buying Twitch money and sending it back over here. <laughs> it's our big export or big export <laughs> industry. Now. It's our big our big export. Son bikers. It's true. it's true. I mean, we we used to live in a world where we thought, okay, we fi- we fight and fight, we get an eight hour work day, and then we thought we're going to get more productive. We're going to build all these machines. Technology is going to advance, and we're going to be able to work fewer and fewer hours. But that seems to be an almost terrifying thought for the powers that be these days, the people in charge. The aim isn't to say, okay, well, all these electronics are going to put truckers out of business and self-driving cars and all of this stuff. And ultimately, we should just decide, Andrew Yang style, that we're going to have a basic income and everyone's going to be taken care of regardless of their labor. We're going to decouple this idea of human rights, basic human rights from people's labor. And we can have, yes, I'm going to say it again, a Star Trek utopia, a Star Trek socialism where we can focus on other kinds of things like exploration and science instead of toiling because we've got robots to toil. And some people I think have gotten so, and and too many of them are are, our political leaders, are really like invested in the idea of personal moral worth being coupled with the work. And the means testing that Democrats are so wedded to seems to be part of this moral drive to make sure that your basic human rights are earned in some way as though they're not inherent. And they really tell on themselves with these programs that they choose. The basic kind of idea of means testing, at least, you know, among different welfare state approaches, is the idea that, well, we want you, we want as many people as possible to make it on their own through labor income and through capital income, I guess. So that's so concentrated, it's sort of irrelevant to most people. We want most people to make it on their own in that way. And so, because we think it's dignified or for whatever other reason, um, maybe less, uh, you know, positive sounding reason than that, 
And so the only people we want to provide benefits to are those who, you know, but we also don't want people just like dying on the streets. So, you know, the natural solution is only benefits to those who aren't able to make it, you know, on their own. Whereas obviously the more social democratic approach is to say, no, we want these benefits for everyone. This is a social program. It's, it's part of our package of distributive institutions that's meant to go for everyone, just like public school or whatever. It's not dignity reducing or anything like that to provide a middle class person with free health care, you know, that they didn't have to work for, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm curious about Matt. I don't know a ton about your trajectory to get into this place kind of professionally and philosophically. Mm-hmm. I feel like we, there's a, a lot more conversation online about kind of Liz and her spirituality and her, you know, kind of background. How did you come to be a lefty and to want to go out into the world and start a lefty think tank? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's a kind of a hard question because I grew up, you know, lower class, I guess, uh, single mother, two kids in and out of poverty, I guess you'd say, depending on the year. But, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't, despite uh, what some uh, identity uh, theories would suggest, it did not spontaneously generate a left-wing worldview from that. Um, it came about through, uh, you know, uh, intellectual uh, projects that I undertook, primarily in high school to, you know, just sort of read philosophy, primarily to win debate competitions, uh, very, you know, pointless kind of uh, exercise, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. To pick but- up hot socialist girls. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. To, to meet my wife, I was like, well, I, I need to learn all this stuff. And so I, I started reading, you know, right and left wing stuff, you know, just to like construct arguments to try to beat other um, North Texas high schoolers and, you know, feel good about myself. But through that process, you know, you read it and, you know, some things resonate, some things don't. And I was like, yeah, you know, this socialist stuff, that seems right to me. It does not seem right that like a small group of people should own everything. That Mm -hmm. that seems very wrong. Um, And, you know, we can go into why, (laughs) but that seems incorrect. And then when I went into uh, undergrad at the University of Oklahoma, you know, I majored in philosophy and, you know, I kind of continued on that track. Um, and while I was there, I was doing left-wing politics. I, uh, we started like a left-wing campus organization, which we called Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, you know, obviously no, no direct connection to the old one, but, uh, you know, an homage, I guess. And I worked on Ralph Nader's presidential campaign. I worked at Jobs with Justice. So it's all I your worked, fault. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this was in 2008. So, you know, people uh, okay. aren't as pissed about that year, I guess. But, uh, yeah, so I kind of did lefty things uh, during you know during college and, and during my summers there, and and then I decided I'm going to be a labor lawyer. So I went to law school, and um, you know I actually did get through, and then actually got a job being a labor lawyer at the National Labor Relations Board. But in that process, well, I started blogging when I was uh, in in between uh, my undergrad and law school, and I did that for that summer because I was bored. I didn't have anything to do. I, I read blogs like Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein and stuff. This was before they were like super big time. And mm-hmm. I was like, like I, I can do this shit. Like I'm better. <laughs> I can do better than these guys at this stuff. Um, and like that seemed to, that turned out to be true. It seemed like. Um, <laughs> Amen. But I got picked up by Demos based on just like my successful blog. You know, they're like, bring the blog over here. Hmm. So I, I kind of did that simultaneously while I was in law school, the Demos stuff. And then when I graduated law school, Demos offered me a job. Um, but I turned it down because I wanted to be a labor lawyer and I didn't want to do think tank bullshit. 
But then, you know, I turned out I got fired from that job, <laughs> from both the Demos job and my National Relations Board job for, for posting too much and posting the wrong kinds of things, I guess you'd say. And uh, then I was like, well, shit, I guess you'd just start my own think tank, I guess. So was this... Well, what did you post? Yeah, this is the Neurotannin debacle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, so yeah. This, is, this is important. This is what I was hoping we would get to since the core topic of conversation this past week, the news request I've had to parry inquiries about all week are all mm-hmm. about this woman who for people who exist on the internet you know she's infamous but for mm-hmm. the average american i would guess that maybe 0.1% of the population could identify her in a lineup so right. so what well, what she was she does go and meet the press and stuff so it might be like 2% okay. or 3% fair yeah. fair enough i don't mean to sell a, sell a woman short <laughs> but how did you first um, come to blows with with Nira Tandon? Yeah, so I didn't even know who she was, even though I'd been at Demos for three or four years. I knew Center for American Progress existed, and I, but I didn't know who ran it. I mean, you know, why, why would I, you know, and I was never trying to get a job in the think tank world, so I didn't even need to think about that either. You weren't, you weren't playing the game. No, I wasn't. I mean, and, 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 you know, I had a job as, as a labor lawyer, like I I had some people for a while, they kind of like, I can't believe he would, he would post like that. And it's like, this is not even my job. I just do this for fun. I know it seems weird. (laughs) It's, it's not like a a fun hobby, but uh, it was my hobby. Um, So yeah, I didn't give a shit really. uh, If people in the sector didn't like me, it's fine. But during the Bernie campaign in 2016, I was, I as far as I can tell, the only, well, there was one other, but there were two of us in like the think tank world, you know, like among like the liberal think tanks who came out for Bernie. And the other guy was at CBPP and he also eventually lost his job. Uh, We were the only two people that were sort of attached to these institutions. And so got a lot of hate, a lot of hate from people. And I'd never really gotten shit up to that point, you know, like I didn't really have a whole lot of people. And she started tweeting at me occasionally. And then I finally figured out who she was and I followed her. And, and initially I would just kind of like wind her up a little bit because there were, there were like little moments in the campaign that I thought were really funny and contradictory. So, you know, at one point they were offended by people saying that Bernie Sanders, you know, by just the general message, you know, Bernie Sanders is the progressive candidate and Hillary Clinton is the, is the more conservative Democrat. And so they started pushing this, you know, I, I don't take a backseat to anyone on progressivism. I'm the most progressive candidate. You know, they started doing that shit. Right. And so I kept every time she would do that because she was you know part of pushing out that message. I would say, "This is why we can't nominate her. She's too progressive. She won't win." <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> this would just really light her up, and like I don't know, you like what could you do to that? Because like, you know they were simultaneously like Bernie can't win; he's a socialist. But then also Hillary Clinton is actually more left wing than Bernie Sanders. Right. Like something doesn't add up here. So this is rooted in you being one of five people on Capitol Hill who supported <laughs> Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas every other like like young lawyer, you know, think tank person, you know, in like the Democrat side, you know, of course would support Hillary Clinton. Like how dare you not support Hillary Clinton? Just I mean surely just purely as an opportunist. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, there are people in the think tanks for sure that, I, that I'm friends with, that I talk with who, you know, they would tell you and, you know, genuinely believe like they're more left wing. Like they would have preferred Bernie like in a kind of like ideal sense. But yeah, if you're in the sector, you're 
trying to line up with people who you think are going to succeed. And Bernie Sanders, he comes out the gate with 2% support, 3% support. Yeah. I'm not in the sector. I don't care. I don't care. I'm not trying to get a job in any mm. administration. So I'm just doing what I, you know, I was planning on being a labor lawyer. Yeah. Um, so you didn't so. show proper deference <laughs> to someone who is understood to be one of the major players in the think tank world. Can we, can we actually pause for a moment and explain to the audience what the fuck a think tank is? Yeah, that's good. In real terms, in, <laughs> in, in actual terms. Yes. Not like their mission statement, uh, what, what they believe it is. Yeah, so most, so there are different kinds of think tanks, but most think tanks, like the big ones, they do a couple of things, right? So CAP is the biggest one on the on the liberal side, and so and that's Neurotanin's think tank, so maybe it's useful to just kind of focus on them. So yep. one is they, they have a lot of people who are have jobs at the think tank that they're basically just sitting there and waiting for the next uh, Democratic administration. So they're like the next administration and waiting. It's not clear what they do day to day, but they get paid a salary and they, I don't know, occasionally like do panel talks and whatever, right? Um, so just kind of a holding pin for those people. Then they also produce sort of policy that uh, they push on Capitol Hill and, you know, try to get the Democratic Party behind. And, you know, if you're that kind of institution, it's pretty easy to do that. So they kind of agenda set on what, like, the boundaries of policy are going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, they also provide day-to-day -day help to members of Congress if they need something. Like, oh, I, I need to help on this or that policy. You know, their staffs are not necessarily well-funded or, or anything like that. So they go out to the think tanks. and Right. Because members stuff. of Congress, they don't have the staffs to, you know, actually you know craft the model legislation. They they don't have the stuff to even right. know, often read and understand the legislation. So this work is basically outsourced to this constellation of think tanks. The actual work of legislating. Right. And in, in many ways, it's it's yeah, it's, it's very similar to lobbying in that respect, right? So the lobbyists write yeah. a lot of the bills as well because they don't have the capacity inside Congress to, to construct these bills on this level. So, And then the, lobby, the lobbying thing, I think, you know, if I had to describe it very shortly, I would just say these are unregistered lobbying organizations, right? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, that's what they do. And, and frankly, a lot of their money comes from the same places, right? So CAP takes money from, I mean, think of any major corporation in the U.S. and they, they take money from them, right? Google, so Facebook... Goldman Sachs, uh, Citibank, uh, I mean, anything, anyone you could think of, they take they take money from. And they also take money from foreign governments like lobbyists do as well, um, including the, the, the three that I saw recently was Japan, Germany and United Arab Emirates. This is an important point, right? That uh, these think tanks, they set, they police the boundaries. Like a, a think tank like CAP, which has the word progress in its name, is going mm -hmm. to police the leftward boundaries of the, the policy that the, the Democratic coalition is going to pursue right. and what's writing that agenda, what's setting what's actually setting that agenda is the money that comes in is the sources of funding. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one other thing I guess would be uh, worth pointing out is they do a lot of work in the media as well. I try to replicate this to some degree at, at People's Policy Project. But if you're writing a story about whatever some policy issue, if you're at The Washington Post or The New York Times, like the obvious source you go to is some expert at CAP or some expert at Center on Budget and Policy Priorities or some, you know, some expert at one of the like big six think tanks. And so that becomes, I mean, they can steer the media narrative as well because the media also does not have the independent ability to evaluate policies that are before them, right? In most cases, they have to go to find some expert and so then they go to CAP and it's CAP's plan, but they may not even know that CAP came up with it, you know, like, so it's a very much like a closed bubble of information that they 
really help drive, like whether in Congress or among media or, or anything like that. So does that work for you? Are you able to get that same kind of access and get your stuff written up from the People's Policy Project in the same way that CAP can? Yeah, you know, I mean, we get a lot of stuff. I mean, I've gotten stuff written up in The Times and The Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, Bloomberg. Like, we get a lot of links and a lot of, you know, every time I put out a paper, I, you know, I do the comms game and I try to reach out. Oh, I give you an exclusive story on our paper. <laughs> and uh, people do, people eat that shit up um, and they, they write about it. And so I, I've been effective in that sense. And I've been effective in the sense that there are a handful of offices that you probably guess who are well aligned with, like, my political view that, you know, I could talk to their staff and if they need help, sometimes they come to me or I might like, you know, give, give them some advice or, or try to get them going on something. But it's an it's a small niche that I'm operating with. Right. So the squad has been good to you. I'll say it if, even if you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and you're but the difference, the big core difference between what you do and what Cap does is you're funded by small donations on Patreon, whereas right. Cap is funded by you know Exxon. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, I don't. I'm not navigating any stakeholders or who's this going to piss off or who's that going to piss off or or anything like that or trying to raise more money. You know, like I, I don't have any of those uh, issues. And and then the other thing is, uh, it is uh, you know, when you run a campaign like Bernie's, the thing that they want to do is say all the policies are stupid and ridiculous and blah 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 blah. And the reason they think that is because they go talk to someone at the other think tanks and they tell them that, and then they write it up because the press has no independent ability to evaluate any of the policies, right? And so. I think I was reasonably effective at being able to be like, no, this is totally like, I'll show you exactly how this would work. Let me lay it out for you. And here's some numbers, here's some spreadsheets, you know, to at least push back on that. So, so this is what makes Nira Tandon such a fascinating figure to people like us, because according to this, this DC ecosystem, she is a very important person. Mm -hmm. In fact, she's a very important person on the left. She's a very important progressive. And yet to us, she is an unhinged person on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, her background is interesting. And, and there is a kind of, um, I don't know, circular or self-sealing aspect to power in, in D.C., especially in that context, it seems like, where if people perceive you as having power and in, in like an inside track, they help build you up because they want you to bring them along with them. These administrations hire a ton of people, like thousands of jobs are filled. And there are a lot of people whose dream is to be in a presidential administration. But then because everyone's building you up, that also makes it the case that you are powerful. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the perceived power drives the deference, which then drives the power, mm -hmm. which then drives the deference. And you're off in, a, in an interesting uh, sort of circle. Aside from that kind of uh, house of cards aspect of it, the reality with Tandon is she came in in the 1990s as a Hillary Clinton like pick, right? She was Hillary Clinton's aide in the White House and Hillary Clinton was sort of like the first lady who did policy, you know, like not not just you know reading to kids and whatever. Yeah. And so she she got on that train real early and she was uh on Hillary's staff when she was a senator and they, you know, put her in cap, like cap was created basically to be the holding pen for the Hillary Clinton administration. Yes. Um, and so she was there and, and, you know, what she does more than anything is she, she gets money from that Clinton network and she brings it into cap and brings it, brings it into other entities. And, you know, so it's sort of just 
grab onto Hillary and hold on tight and, and, you know, get as much money as you can from, from them and bring them into your organization. And if you're really good at fundraising and all that kind of stuff, then you're significant and powerful in that way. So on some level, Neera Tandon and, and a lot of the people at Cap, they're just they're just Clinton world people who are waiting for Hillary Clinton to become president. And after that uh, did not pan out, surprisingly, uh, they had to wait four years for Biden to become president. And now this is, you know, this is the, the, the cattle call to get a job. So right. in this time when, you know, the Democrats were out of power, what did Cap do? What, what are some of Neera and Cap's greatest hits? The stuff that they put out, you know, they put out a lot of shit, but like the stuff that came across my radar is, you know, they put out Medicare for America, I think it was called, which was basically like what became the Pete Buttigieg plan. Um, Wait, wasn't that, um, wasn't that like Medicare premium or something like that? It was like Medicare, yeah, no, Medicare for, our, for all who want it. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the basic gist was, yeah, a public option and, and the, the public option was going to compete in all markets. Um but then also that there would be, you know, like a Medicare Advantage type component where you could get your Medicare through a private insurer in the way that seniors, some seniors do. The point of that, which they released, you know, right after Trump won, was to, you know, they were ready, they were getting ready for Bernie, right? I mean, that was the whole point, yeah. right, is to have a response to Bernie uh, for the next, the next campaign because everyone expected him to run. And they did that over and over again with different topics. So another one was the job guarantee, which, you know, I, as you may know, I'm not too hot on, but Cap put out a job guarantee plan that was, there was no job guarantee aspect to it. It was just like, we should hire more EMTs and, uh, you know, teachers and stuff. And it's like, but they thought, hey, this is a big thing on the left and Bernie's going to, you know, go with this. And so we need to have something that like a center can use. Yeah. So these are, you know, these are our policy proposals. These are policy thrusts coming from the, the, the D.C. Democrat establishment at a time when the left is actively agitating for Medicare for all, actively agitating for socialized medicine, agitating to move the party to the left. So effectively, the, this is this is the establishment response and yeah. this is this is the thing that we can all kind of glom onto and that you know when the next when the primaries come you know we can sell this to people and we can slap the words you know american progress on it yeah 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 to undercut the left wing policy thing and also interestingly to kind of confuse the discourse by taking the words that are used by the left wing uh, for their policy pushes and, and attaching them to other things. And so it just gets very muddled and confused. So, so that you get to the point where you're like, I don't know what Medicare for all is. Is it this, this cap thing? Is it this, uh, you know, what it is? Dozens of things. And, uh, you know, mm. people would actually write articles like that. I'm curious, Matt, what's the best kind of response you have for people who do get confused about that sort of, sort of thing and say, say stuff like, well, why not have Medicare for all who want it? We like choice. We're Americans. If people want to keep their private health care, you know, why shouldn't they be able to? What Pete Buttigieg and all of these kinds of folks are saying makes sense to me. Oh, so specifically about Medicare for America was the problem with that. So, I mean, the issues are a number uh, of them, right? So one is that people lose their health insurance all the time in any kind of system where you don't have like a national health insurer. And it doesn't get rid of that problem. It just keeps it. And so... You know, you, you, it's going to continue to be the case that you, if you lose your job, you lose your health insurance. If you move states, you lose your health insurance. If you turn 26, you lose your health insurance. Like that process, which is called insurance churn, even if you 
get back on another insurer is really shitty and sucky. And like, I've gone through it a number of times and had to like, always yeah. like patch together some bullshit in the middle. Like, Oh my, my kid got, uh, <laughs> my kid got some bullshit and I had to go to some minute clinic because we were in between insurance because Liz changed her job or something. And it's like, that's not a good experience. But beyond that, it's like private insurers, they're, they are a waste of money. I mean, I don't know how else to put it, right? They're siphoning off about 15 cents of every dollar you send yeah. them. For that what? That should be intuitive. I mean, that should be intuitive. Just, <laughs> looking, just looking at it in terms of this macro sense. Okay, well, there's profit going somewhere. There's, a shitload, there's people making a shitload of money. Why? That's not necessary. That whole, that whole part of the expenditure does not need to be made. Right, right. You're taking that money out of the pie um, and you're taking the money out in, in, in other places as well uh, as a result of that. So on the provider side, in the United States, 25 cents of every dollar that goes into the provider, so a hospital or a doctor's office or whatever, 25 cents of that goes to the billing department because they've got to go hire all these people to chase down the money, right? So you got you got 15 cents of the dollar that goes to the insurer and then you know the, of the remaining 75 cents you know another like quarter of that goes to the biller and it, you don't need that right in Canada they billing uh, only takes i think 12 cents uh, or something like that that's like not just billing but people do not realize just how Byzantine our medical billing system is and just the, the distortive effects that it has on uh, medical prices. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. I, there was um, a health, uh, a public health system um, a while ago, like one of these big public hospitals. I don't remember which one. I think it was connected to a university or something like that. And they published that they had in their system literally millions of prices that they had established because every payer every insurer negotiates their own price and then that's got to cover every conceivable thing that is priced right so like everything you can imagine that you would charge for um, you have to have a price for it and then you have to have like hundreds of prices for it for each specific payer and it's just like the amount of work that goes into producing just just cataloging those prices is insane yeah, and the media never asks. What was so frustrating during the campaign is, I mean, obviously your points are well taken. I think the average person goes through 12, changes jobs 12 times over the course of their lifetime. And right. obviously that's before a global health pandemic. But I would hope that now, after 14 million Americans now have lost their employer-based health insurance because of the pandemic, you would hear the media asking that question more frequently of politicians who do still defend the private health insurance system, but they don't. And so, of course, you're never going to get that interrogated. What it feels like is that we live in a world where there's a Medicare for All, for All proposal, which has all these myriad problems, including how do you pay for it? Because that's bandied about on the news all the time. And there's this other thing called Medicare for All Who Want It that is completely uncomplicated and has absolutely no downsides because no one ever presses the folks who prefer right. to No, I, well, I got into this uh, epic uh, battle of sorts with Ezra Klein that actually resulted in me coming on his podcast mm. uh, that was based on this... Um, you know, if you like your health insurance, you can keep it. And I was, you know, he had written a few pieces about that, emphasizing that part of the plan. And I, I you know, would have pushed back and say, this is a, this is not true. <laughs> yeah. It is not true that you get to keep your health insurance in uh, any of these plans that maintain employer-sponsored insurance because you lose it every time you lose your job. And he would kind of accuse me of being sort of like cute and playing word games. And you know what people mean and blah, 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 blah. And then I have definitely, though I've not checked in w with him uh, about it, I have post pandemic 
pandemic wondered like do you see what i'm saying now buddy like uh <laughs> we, we, <laughs> that, look i remember no, that exchange that was one of the best i don't know podcast exchanges i've ever listened to and, and frankly it's it's not often that you hear folks who actually know what they're talking about from different ideological perspectives having a good faith conversation i think you know listeners should feel free to take to the twitters and ask ezra klein to come back and join <laughs> join you yeah i should i should just yeah. contact him and say i want a definitive statement like do you think you know based on what happened that any system that maintains employer sponsored insurance should ever be described as allowing you to keep your insurance yeah. if you want if you want to Wait, on our show yeah I, I mean obviously i mean matt has a show so obviously if the brunings want to host they get first bite of the apple but i would put to the whole crew that we have unique a unique capacity here on bad faith I bet you could have Ron. He went on uh, Nathan Robinson's podcast, Current Affairs. You can, yes, I, yeah, but I don't have to do anything. Right? I don't have to do, talk about employer-based health insurance. I don't have to talk about churn or, or whatever. You know, I'm not learning that for, for you, Bree. Well, I'm sorry. The thing is, look, the, the thing I almost want to know most about him, and I'm, I'm curious if you have any insights, uh, since we don't as of yet have him on the roster. People like him who are more informed and smarter than most, right? I don't, I don't yeah. think he's necessarily making a bad virtual. <laughs> I don't think he's necessarily like out here making bad faith arguments the way that some people are. Like Pete Buttigieg knows what he's doing and he's making a choice to do it because of political calculations. He he mm. knows that Medicare for all is plausible. He wrote his thesis paper on it on how much he loves Bernie Sanders or whatever. You know, he's a bad faith actor. People like Ezra Klein, I'm really curious. And a lot of these folks who see themselves as like liberal or progressive or on the left more broadly, but who have such a myopic, I think, in my opinion, view of the kind of Bernie movement and the left. What is that about? What what is driving what feels like an inclination, a defensive posture almost against genuinely left politics and all of the Vox articles and all of those pieces that seem to be so protective of the world as it runs currently. Yeah, well, so one explanation for this, uh, which I think was proved reasonably well in the 2020 primary is that for a lot of these people, you know, they're just as susceptible to people who they feel like are like themselves <laughs> as, a, as anyone else is, right? They like to be reflected. Uh, they like to support people that they think uh, that they think are fellow wonks or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, and Bernie Such is definitely... think. Yeah, and Bernie is definitely not that, right? Well, because here's why I think the Warren proves it, right? Is because the media in general was very much against Bernie in 2016. And a lot of the posturing was like, this policy is naive and stupid and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's sort of, you know, part of the reason why I jumped in the game and was like, oh, I could show you that policy is actually pretty reasonable, you know. But Warren runs in 2020 and she adopts most of Bernie's platform from 2016, even goes beyond it in certain ways. And they seem to love her. Like Ezra seemed really warm and like liked Warren a lot. And, you know, my, to my eyes, it's like, well, Warren performs the professor, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a way that they find appealing and Bernie performs the, you know, rabble rouser, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, so. so this is part oh, of, so it's, so it's, go ahead. So it's, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, you go ahead. please. Oh, I, I was just going to say that if he had listened to me and uh, gotten some of those Buddy Holly glasses that he used to wear back in the day, you know, like Virgil's and emphasize that University of Chicago, Chicago degree, he could have won over right. much more of the Beltway. Well, that's a funny thing because it is so you could cast either one of them that way if you wanted to. Right. I mean, he, he you know, he obviously got into leftism 
from campus new mm-hmm. left politics, right? Right. <laughs> like the old SDS, the old, you know, the the hippies and all the rest of it. And Core. and he yeah. has he's kind of moved on a little bit, obviously, from the college leftism. I mean, entirely, right? And just became like I'm I'm working class Bernie, and I just support you know working class people, and and less so other lefty things. Um, like like in terms of emphasis, in terms of presentation, even though he's there, he's like that's not my focus. Warren, on the flip side, of course, if you wanted to, you could talk about, you know, her upbringing was very modest in Oklahoma and on all the rest of it. Um, but instead, they they went with, uh, you know, the pinhead. Yeah, which, as it turns out, didn't exactly appeal to very many people who vote at all. Y- yeah, it seems like it have, would have limited appeal, ultimately. You know, most people who vote are... <laughs> I try to explain this sometimes and I don't know if I'm sure polling and stuff could meet this out, but I'm like, you know that a lot of people who don't have college degrees. They don't even like people who have college degrees. <laughs> they just kind of <laughs> like, fuck those people. I know when I would come home and my next door neighbor would, you know, he, he's sitting out on his porch or whatever. He would, he would always be like, Oh, the college boy is here. <laughs> With, you know, a straw, you know, sticking out of his mouth and whatever. Sometimes people admire the ambition if you came, if you came, if someone who came, if you are someone who came from very humble means and you worked your way into college, you know, that's, that's a story that people get behind even if they themselves uh, didn't go to college or they have no ambition to go to college. Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah no, I think she could have Which, definitely yeah. emphasized that aspect of it, but instead was just emphasized. I'm the smartest person in the, in the country, you know? Yeah. I'm curious though. Okay, I have a I have a theory. Let me just like lead with my own theory instead of trying to bait you into it. <laughs> bait okay. you into it. Okay. I had a couple of months ago a conversation with a woman who has a, a podcast over at the cut. And the gist of the conversation was about, you know, she's someone who's liberal, always considered herself progressive and found herself very alienated by the Bernie Sanders movement. Felt like she believed in everything that he fought for, but thought kind of the idea of Bernie Bros were all very like it was all very polarizing. And her concern was that these litmus tests seemed unfair. And she she was being very honest in a way that I appreciated, emotionally honest about what it was that was keeping her from embracing kind of the Bernie left. And she said she really liked Warren and what everything she stood for. And she just seemed like an easy, that seemed like an easier sell. And I've been thinking about that and that interview and that woman and people like her for a long time. And I feel like, there's a kind of emotional response that is akin to what happens when vegans or vegetarians start telling meat eaters about the true negative things, the consequences of eating meat, right? So I think I can relate to the idea that, oh, this person's making better choices than I am. I, for whatever reason, am not there yet. And I'm in my feelings about it. But I choose not to be like, vegans are terrible. It's like, you're right. And I'm, you're right. <laughs> I, I'm going to own my hypocrisy I, right. at the very least and be like, you, I mean, you're right. <laughs> is someone's personal political views, is that a consequential choice? Well, Virgil, I'm not going to be dragged back into this <laughs> this debate with you from episode six. I guess I think it's a consequential <laughs> choice. But I think that what's happening writ large, like across the country that like, yes, I want to say, oh, you guys are being dumb. Just vote for Bernie. Don't you care about health care? Like I can strong arm like that. And that's how I feel sometimes in my private life. But as someone who's actually trying to get that cohort on board, not because they're such a numerous or meaningful cohort, but because they own the media, right? Like the fact that the whole media class was, you know, fawning over um, Elizabeth Warren 
kept her in the race longer than she needed to be, made her a distraction when we could have been talking about Biden and arguably, you know, was a real factor in Bernie not ultimately winning the nomination. And next time around, you know, we might get someone like AOC, who is also beloved by eggheads in the media establishment for different reasons. But we might also get someone who is a little rough around the edges, who doesn't present a certain way. And I'm really curious about, and also they could flip on AOC, right? They could flip on the squad. Oh, yeah. You no, know. for sure they will. And you kind of start to see it coming, you know, all of this critique of Obama that's happened over the last week. You know, who knows how that's going to go in the long run? They blitz the hell out of the squad after, uh, literally the day after the election. Right. They was just nonstop. Squad, squad, squad sucks. Squad sucks. Squad sucks. They cost us the election. <laughs> right. They just went all out on it, you know? Right. So I guess my, my question then is, the the way that, that the left gets attacked often is that you're asking for too much. It's too pie in the sky. And I, your ideology, I think on some subconscious level, makes people feel bad. You know, we make people feel bad because it's like, well, I agree with what you, we all want a better world, right? But it seems the difference mm. between the left and the center left is that we think that world is possible. And for some reason, they've dug in their heels in believing that it's not. And our existence, our insistence that we could be doing better is in some ways, I have to acknowledge an indictment of their choices. Yeah, well, definitely. Um, I wrote a piece about this actually in 2015 or 2016, I think, on my personal website where I was trying, to, I, I kind of reached a similar conclusion as you, it was, it was a short piece and I, your point just reminded me of it, was that I was thinking more about in the pundit game, right? As, as why are so many pundits so like, just seem like put off, not put off, put off by Bernie, put off by people on Twitter who like Bernie, just like they, they seem almost like insecure about it. Like it, they seem like it really gets them. And yeah, it was a similar kind of point, right? Which was that a lot of those people came into politics 10, 15 years ago blogging and they were like the most liberal people in the world, you know, the most liberal people in the game. Hey, I supported gay marriage, you know, like I'm for gay marriage. And like in 2004, that was like a big deal, you know, and then now they find themselves outflanked and their identity is tied up, not just in their particular policy views, but also in those policy views being the best policy views, the most progressive, the most left policy views like in the game. And they feel now they're in this sort of uncomfortable situation where the tide has turned and their policy views are, they're kind of defending from the left, right? Now they're, now they're the, the person who was like, let's don't push gay marriage that hard. You know? Right. Or defund the police or whatever, whatever it is, you know, part of the theater of making the left seem unreasonable or impractical comes from the fact that they're not just willing to say they don't agree. Like either they don't agree or, you know, even the argument that it's not kind of like politically viable, especially in light of all of the evidence that it is politically viable. Right. Like to your point, a lot of the brouhaha after the election was immediately undercut by the real life results of all the people in Spain districts who supported Medicare for all keeping their seats and the victories really being concentrated among people who hadn't taken an ideological stand. So even that seems just to be part of a narrative that is really getting at the, the truth of the matter, which is that they just don't want to do the better thing. And I'm not sure how to get around that because there's a piece of what liberals say, which is that the left is judgy, which if you really boil it down to this central truth, it's kind of, you can't avoid it, right? If it, if it all comes down to, we think that, that like we should do these good things and you don't, there is a, an inherent kind of moral judgment at the core of it. And I don't want to be judging people 
morally, but when I have these arguments with folks, you do get to a point where it's like, yeah, don't eat meat. <laughs> and I say that I say that as a meat eater who like, you know, I, I get a little sensitive about it sometimes. Yeah, do the good thing. Don't don't do the half good thing. Why not just do the good thing? Yeah. But that does irritate them, definitely. And I mean, and some people can presentationally come off as holier than thou, which is probably not like the best choice. Um, I don't think Bernie ever really came off that way. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, some people can get it, get get going in that direction. But yeah, like you said, when the insecurity is just tied up in the fact that you want to be like really progressive and really like humane and all the rest of it, but you also find yourself. Uh, resisting the most progressive thing and just like the dissonance of that makes you feel bad and makes you lash out or insecure or whatever. I don't know how to solve that, you know? Well, like, Matt, why are you even here? I don't even know what this conversation is. <laughs> Do you think we need to define progressive? Do you think that's a, a, a battle that we should take on to police the edges of that term? I don't know. I don't even use, I, I mean, I use the word here and there because I feel like, you know, I don't know, but like, it wasn't progressive. I remember progressive being the thing that people said because they didn't want to call themselves liberals. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's all it is. <laughs> like, like, okay, that's all so. it is. This is just to give people some vague intimation that they're on the left. And honestly, Bri, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but I think like where, where I disagree with you is I don't view the people you're talking about as morally driven individuals. So what are they driven by? Their self-interest. Like every single person who works at Cap is driven by themselves. Not They're not trying to be a cap. good person or rational. Like, well, I mean, it not, this doesn't just apply to Cap. Sure. I'm just using Cap as a starting off point. But I'm saying everyone in that that Washington ecosystem, and that applies to quite a lot of people in the media who even if who even like someone like Ezra Klein, who might not seem to be angling for a position in the Biden administration, doesn't actually really have to curry favor for, say, private health insurers specifically. Like he's not going to get a, a nasty phone call from the president of Aetna if he if Vox runs a pro Medicare for all piece, which, you know, they do at times because there are, you know, lefties who work in the media they tend to be young. They tend to be the some of the people who are driving the union pushes at places like Vice News and BuzzFeed Vox and like all the all the media uh, operations. And uh, and uh, I'm saying that someone like Ezra Klein, again, just using that example, is it like has a self-interest. He's going to oppose Bolshevism because he's doing very well. But what about not Ezra Klein, but like this woman at Cut or, or like Norm, you don't have normies in your life who you've had this conversation with? Do you know me? Bruce? OK. What, 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 all right. Normies? Well, then let me right, like, <laughs> look, at, look at me right now. Look at me. All right. Well, let me confess. Maybe I'm overly preoccupied. Like I will, I will admit to having a certain, you know, friends from a certain social media, like friends from college, friends from law school. I will. Maybe this isn't important, but it does pain me that we have had this rift over the course of the last five years or so, and that, like, you know, ideologically, I don't even want to begin to start to bring things up. Like, probably cut this, but like, I'm on like dating apps and it's so daunting because they're like I'm a liberal and they're like wearing the I'm with her shirt or the Warren shirt and I just know there's so many conversations between us between here and us being together <laughs> like it's just it's the gulf is too wide and it's just not even worth it and I oh see I don't think you have to cut that honestly you know, I see the, I see people on dating apps with they still have like Pete and Warren crap oh. in their in their in their bio this is like one of these this is one of like the five pieces of information that you are going to give a total stranger who's going to evaluate you sexually and romantically is I love Mayor Pete. Or the Kamala shirts. <laughs> I feel like there there are a lot of like 
non-black guys who are wearing a Kamala shirt in solidarity, like to show that they're like open to dating women of other races. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, sir, that is not the catnip. That is not the catnip you think new, it is. That's a, that's a new angle. I think that is, that's particular to your dating pool. <laughs> <laughs> like you, oh, like white guys putting like, you know, like being effusive about liking Kamala. Yeah, or, or Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of white guys in Black Lives Matter shirts. Well, that's not the you know, thing. I'm, I'm glad you said su- that. I mean, that's it. okay. I mean, even if that's insincere, okay, it's a step in the right direction, right? It's 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 twice as sincere as the businesses who use it as um, break in protection. <laughs> use yeah. put up Black Lives Matter <laughs> sign. Yeah. Or, just, oh. or just 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 put up black owned business in the window, even though it's not. Oh God! <laughs> Is that a f- has anybody been oh, caught yeah, doing yeah, yeah. that? I don't know about if anyone recently, but that was like a thing with like L.A. riots and stuff. So oh eventually man, people figured out like oh i'll just say it's black owned and then i'll just <laughs> skip it <laughs> uh, i hate it okay okay well, well while i have both of you here yeah i i think we do we we should get back to near tandon the the story right near tandon and we've done a lot we've, we've done a lot of scaffolding here explaining exactly what her job is and i take it both of you have had high profile tangles with this person hmm and Matt, you you told your story, or maybe maybe you should tell the full story. Tell the story. Were... Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, the story is pretty short, right? So, yeah. Um, at some point in the campaign uh, in 2016, um, there was a Twitter thread going. Um, I don't remember exactly. I think Joan Walsh tweeted a piece that was saying, uh, you know, I don't know, this or that about how Bernie supporters are misogynists or something. And I tweeted back that, oh, the the support difference actually breaks down on age, not uh, like gender or anything. Um, and um, and then in that thread, like Nara Tannen jumped in. I don't remember exactly what she said. It wasn't it wasn't like inflammatory at first. Um, and well, then something uh, scoldy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then. Um, at one point, um, she'd said something about, oh, I, I, you know, I'd said, hey, you know, welfare reform, like, uh, like Hillary Clinton, welfare reform, bad, you know? Um, <laughs> and she was like, well, it, I'll let you know, I was on welfare as a kid. And then I said, you know, well, scumbag Nera uses welfare when she needs it, takes it away uh, from others when they need it, because she worked in the Clinton White House when this, uh, when welfare reform was being implemented. She will be very careful to tell you she was did not work there when it when it was passed. In, the, in that but, fake but, fake email. But we yeah, but when it was being implemented, she was in there, and and now she insists that she was there, but she did not work on it. I don't, you know, um, so. Uh, whatever. I, um, I was on welfare as a kid. I know how dangerous it is. I barely <laughs> survived it. If only uh, I had received a hand up instead of a hand out. And that's why I work at Cap now. <laughs> and it was a, uh, you know, it was actually a reference to the old Scumbag Steve meme, which, you know, at the time was, it was not, you know, now it's kind of cringe when I think about it. But at the time, you know, it was cool and legit, I feel like, uh, to do a Scumbag Steve joke. But, you know, for whatever reason, people decided to fixate on the word scumbag and, and it was like, that's basically like, uh, you know, a slur. Yeah. Yeah. They tried to intimate that this was a misogynist slur that you had made. I call yeah, it yeah. Scumbag Nero. Yeah, and Wait. so then I get I get fired and um, really yeah. you straight up got fired. Yeah, I got fired at Demos, um, and then eventually I got terminated at the National Relations Board. Their um, explanation was a little bit less clear, but the basic reality was I was in my probationary period. There's a two year probationary period before you're you know unfireable. <laughs> they just fired me. Uh, you know, formally they fired me without cause. Uh, that, so that's you got what fired the, for two jobs. 
two yeah, jobs yeah. just for calling Nero Tannen a scumbag, which again, true statement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and, and I, I think I think you know if I really think what happened at the NLRB was I don't think they cared that I called her a scumbag, like that they bought into like the notion that's a slur. It was just. Oh, we've got one of our like honors attorneys, low low level like workers, like stirring up shit that gets covered in Politico. <laughs> like we don't need yeah. that, you know. Yeah, they don't um, want so. the controversy. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So substantively, then, obviously, we all have a lot of personal reasons to be, let's say, frustrated with her as a human being. But substantively, why should we be concerned about uh, her heading up OMB? Well, I mean, so. Nira's politics are a little bit inscrutable. She, you know, she's kind of all over the place depending on, she's just kind of, I guess you would say like a Democrat team player. Like I, it's hard to really like pin her down on like, what, what does she believe? What is she for? What, you know, like she doesn't take any particular bold stand. So, I mean, in the past when, you know, Obama was floating cuts to Medicare and social security, she was going on TV saying, yeah, we should cut social security yeah. and Medicare. Yeah she's empty you know like i couldn't pin that down and be like she hates social security she doesn't that's even the wrong question to ask she doesn't care you know what i mean she doesn't care she doesn't yeah Yeah. my favorite is the quote from her mom who says uh my daughter can be very aggressive she's not going to let anyone rule over her and she has loyalty to hillary because hillary is the one who made her like her own mother kind of just describes her as a party loyalist hillary acolyte who's aggressive as we know yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Physically. I think that's right. But that means that therefore she 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 could do whatever. Yeah. And, and and to the extent that Biden is definitely Biden almost did actually seem like he wanted to cut Social Security, like based on his long record of talking about it and talking about it in the context of being like, I know this is real unpopular. But like in that context, like, I don't know what else to make of that than like you're really into this. So the best thing you can say about New York Tannis, she's just going to go which way the wind blows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we and can't the worst push thing her. you can, so <laughs> we, so we can't, push well, her we can't push her. We that's the thing. We can't push her. The people who donate to Cap can push her. The people who, but Joe Biden can push her, and they won't, and because they don't care. Well, she'll go whatever direction. If, if if Biden comes in and says, you know, okay, we got to cut a deal with Mitch McConnell, we got to deal with these entitlements, then she's going to be the point person. Which she will. The press I mean, and yeah. advertise these things. Yeah, and yeah. I think what you know what's so I mean what what fascinates us about Nir, at least me anyway, is that. There's nothing unique or interesting about her. Mm. There's thousands and thousands of soulless opportunists yeah. in Washington, D.C. who do the exact same thing. She is simply someone who posts 12 hours a day about it. Which is frankly her <laughs> most relatable she, quality. That's the most. And that's fascinating. <laughs> you don't, she doesn't have to do this shit. She makes half a million dollars a year at a do nothing job as the president of CAP. Do, obviously do nothing because she has the time to post all day. And yet she posts all day. And she posts things that do that do get her in trouble at times. Yeah, no, her, her confirmation is seriously at risk because of the stuff she said about uh, Republicans. I mean, you know, I don't know. Some people will say, well, that's cynical or whatever. But I don't think the Republicans are going to resist most of the nominees that have been put out. But because she kind of did like resistance liberal Twitter for four years and has, you know, decided to talk about how susan collins sucks and whatever like she she you know she could for sure like maybe not get confirmed especially if they win some of the one of those georgia races well know? i would like to see some pressure on the leftmost senators to sink her nomination because i mean what she gave to the right you know, you know attack dog against the right you know that's whatever uh but she was a one of those visible attack dogs against the left yeah. And what's most aggravating about this person and the people who defend her and the people who are fans of her, which is one of the sickest things I can imagine, <laughs> is being a fan 
of the head of a Washington think tank. Right. Like you've got like you've got the her, the near attendant rookie baseball card. Uh, the most aggravating thing is the their shameless use of identity politics to defend right wing policy to defend slashing entitlements it's it's the double talk of you know the crap about hand ups and you know oh we're gonna you know we're gonna reform opportunity and all of that shit which is all just code for we're gonna slash social security we're gonna privatize medicare da 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 it's also saying you know well as as a woman of color you know we have to do these things and right. I, that's where that's but where she I knows. think that's where she knew she was on welfare so. that's and the it's, sickest and part to me the the <laughs> i was on welfare my like, my mother relied on these programs that i'm now talking about and referring to as entitlements and how i'm going to cut them and then someone turns around and asks me well she's a woman of color doesn't that matter to you isn't that representational politics beneficial it's so perverse i frankly think that that sort of thing should be disqualifying frankly the fact that she's been such a terrible manager i mean how many people have worked under her who have now spoken out about how she was abusive. She outed the name of the woman who had brought sexual harassment claims at CAP out of vindictiveness, apparently. You know, people like Zed Jelani and Faz Shakir have obviously spoken about the way that she was abusive as a manager. She obviously physically punched Faz Shakir in front of witnesses. I mean, imagine a world where you just finished running a presidential campaign and the number two guy's campaign manager was assaulted by a woman who you now want to head up the office of <laughs> management and budget. Yeah, no, no. The, the Twitter stuff is interesting because there were no no other nominee, as far as I remember, got like a bunch of people to tweet support for them. Yeah. <laughs> so like one that already indicates uh, at least some insecurity, some right. insecure feeling about like, oh my God, like I'm, this might not work. But then two, amusingly, it goes back to Twitter again. Right. <laughs> She's like, I need you guys to tweet for me, you know? Like, they know they have like, a what problem. What does it matter? They know they have a problem and they did yeah, it yeah, yeah. anyway. Like that, the level of disrespect. I, I'm sorry, I can't get past it. If there had been anyone else, especially there's a gendered component here, right? Because I can't imagine a man punching anybody on the job and anybody like just blowing it off. But well, no. actually, so there, I saw a tweet the other day that said actually it's the exact opposite, that the only reason people make hey of her abusive tactics is because she's a woman and so <laughs> sort of misogynistically they assume that she's you know not gonna punch people and stuff i thought we put that uh that argument to bed with amy klobuchar but glad to see it lives <laughs> oh yeah no also, it's still here it's still here me if i'm wrong with this but she also crushed the union at think progress well she just eliminated think progress she eliminated which think is the, which crushed the union yeah no no that bit was really funny because yeah think progress unionized and they ended up just shutting it down entirely. And the reason they gave was, well, it's losing money. And you're like, what, do you, what the fuck do you mean it's losing money? The whole think tank loses. It doesn't you're, make you're money. You're a think tank. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a money tank. <laughs> yeah. Like money comes in from rich people and then you give it to people to do some work maybe. Like there's no revenue generation outside the donations that you're giving to Think Progress to run the site. So what the fuck are you talking about? Like what is this accounting that you're doing over there? <laughs> You find wonderful tweets for us to discuss. That tends to be our <laughs> dynamic. I only have a dim view of this stuff, probably because I've reached the point where I've just seen enough posts where I'm like, I can just imagine the posts <laughs> at this point. And thinking about people saying, you know, this is, you know, what a, this is a great achievement to have a woman of color run the office of management and budget. I, like, I'm falling asleep like halfway through <laughs> saying the name of this thing. Like, that one's interesting to me. The genre of people saying, 
She's qualified. That's what you say. That's what that's what you say when you want to say a nice thing about a nominee is, well, they're so qualified for this role, which just seems like just such faint praise. Also, what does that mean? Like, so I it doesn't mean anything. Back in 2016, when you know Hillary, it was her turn, and she was presumed to win. My understanding was that Neera Tandon was on tap to be. Uh, was it uh, chief of staff? Was chief it chief of staff? Of staff? Was the oh, I, yeah. th- okay, I thought I heard there was um, another department. It was like. Health and Human Services, oh, I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, wa- she wants to do HHS or Chief of Staff. I think that was, yeah, those were the suggestions. So here's the thing. If you have Chief of Staff, which I would argue the qualifications are more nebulous. If, you know, that's management skills, which she obviously doesn't have, like people skills. And that was wrong, so, right? Under Obama. Yeah. So hilariously, we could debate. She's, she's kind of fundamentally unqualified for it, but at least there's not like a substantive like issue area of knowledge there. But help it. How are you going to be qualified to, to run health and human services i don't know what her, what background she has that would that would inform that position right and now also office of management and budget which you know i'm not entirely sure what this done <laughs> well it doesn't it doesn't matter i mean that's the thing it doesn't matter with these cabinet visits look at the guys they got now but like oh, yeah. who, who is Nira? like what how you're gonna make a qualified argument the argument that she's qualified you gotta point to something Right, that's the thing. That's what aggravates me so much because it's not like it's not like a job where she has to do something. It's not like she, you yeah, know, yeah. she shows up and she's got to, you know, figure out all the freaking calculator buttons. You know, she's got to get the freaking budget report to the president. She can't. Oh no, she can't oversleep and fuck up, or else we'll all be in big trouble. No, it's just another. It's just another figurehead position. It's a. It's another job where you. It's like being the head of a think tank yeah. where you keep donors happy and you go on meet the press and you punch at the left. Well, I want to know when Matt Brunig is going to have enough money to hire all of the failed politicos from the Bernie campaign to sit in a holding pen at the People's Policy Project until the next lefty presidential candidate comes down well, the Well, you know, maybe after this appearance, uh, all your <laughs> listeners will send me enough money I can hire some people. Um. <laughs> you hear that? But this is, this is like, like actually a kind of a problem that the left experiences. I remember talking no, to is. Ryan Grimm about this once. After Carrie mm-hmm. Evelyn Harris lost her race in 2018, she was so promising. She's great in a lot of ways, but she is an, an actual working class person who had a young kid at home and didn't have an income. You know, she didn't have an income. And... Mm-hmm. I remember Ryan Graham and I talking about how Republicans would take care of someone like that on their side. They would set them up somewhere and ready them to run again in the next cycle. Whereas Democrats tend to just let people like that flounder and they have to go out into the world and find a real job. So either they leave politics altogether or they find themselves in some compromised position where they can't maintain their the progressive values that made them so interesting and, and compelling as a candidate in the first place. And it's hard for the left to figure out what to do in these instances because we don't think we should go and, and use lobbyists as a holding pin or lobbying firms as a holding pin for us. But there aren't very many opportunities for those in the left. I mean, we all got to start a podcast. That's right. Yeah, no, no, that's definitely right. I mean, and and the way the government is set up, the, the you know, if you won the presidency, you have to appoint so many people. The ability of a of a Bernie to appoint only you know, Bernie people would, I mean, it would be almost impossible. That's why you he know, was he, looking he, into if Elizabeth Warren could uh, have two jobs at once. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's a big reason why, that's a big reason why, you know, there are lefty podcasters uh, because it's not, it, the DC is just not a hospitable place as, as Matt's story reveals to someone who's not going to toe the line, who's not going to suck up to someone who is by, frankly, by all accounts, a monster like Neera Tandon. <laughs> 
people they want you to be i guess you might say like team players in some sense like maybe that would be like the positive spin to it like you got to work within the whatever to get along but um if you don't share those views there's no like left team there's no let you know there's only two parties and you know i don't know that's how Mm -hmm. everything is oriented around so you just kind of screwed and i mean i know a lot of people have been spit out of here right not just me i mean marshall steinbaum was spit out recently Mm -hmm. uh, like claudia psalm which we could get into if you want to talk about heather bushy who was uh, another nominee what what happened so, yeah, I mean, so to take a step back, uh, you know, there's this think tank called Washington Center on Equitable Growth, uh, which used to be part of CAP, but spun off into its own thing. And their executive director was Heather Bushy. And she was recently appointed to something or other. I don't remember. I think it's maybe the Council of Economic Advisors or something like that. But earlier this year, Claudia Som, who was who used to work at the Federal Reserve and she came up with the SOM rule, which your listeners might be familiar with. Anyway, it's like a recession detection uh, formula she came up with, uh, which is quite impressive. So she was working there and she wrote a post on her personal blog about, you know, basically like toxic elements of the economics profession. I mean, there were parts about sexism and all the rest of it. And she called out Larry Summers Mm. in particular, you know, all totally, I don't know, right, to my mind, exactly reasonable sense. Yeah. Like, you know, like, I mean, it, that isn't that what Larry Summers is famously known for right. at Harvard, saying that women can't do math? Like, <laughs> right. um, I don't, but, but Larry Summers, you know, is close to Biden. He's close to, you know, the whole thing. And she, uh, I mean, she just wrote a piece about this a few days ago. So I'm just, you know, saying what she, what she said, uh, that she was at that point basically slowly like drummed out of her job um they put her on you know they start saying that you know she doesn't do good work and blah 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 they put her on a performance improvement plan where she had to like check in each week and you know i don't know eventually thing things went sour and she ended up you know leaving that job and you know i mean she got forced out basically you know it's the same situation right i mean in many ways right is the Heather Bushy, presumably, right? She's the top of the organization, presumably, you know, she was involved. I mean, certainly uh, Claudia claimed she was. She wants an influence in the incoming administration. She want, she wanted an administration job, which she got. And she said, I, this is not helpful to me. You know, it's not helpful to have someone throwing bombs like this from the left at, at Biden people. So now she's out. And, I, you know, I think she 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 got a, a writing gig at the New York Times and maybe Bloomberg or something like that. I mean, eventually she'll catch on because she's like a world-class economist, but for the time being can't operate in the auxiliary like democratic institutions in D.C. Truly, truly the cancel culture conversation (laughs) that nobody is having is, I mean, like there's really something to be said for, I mean, there are systems of power that are exclusive and exclusionary and combative and enormously powerful and we spend as a society a lot of time talking about jk rowling i don't even know her name i'm sorry i'm too old jk rowling the harry potter lady (laughs) the harry potter lady just say the harry potter lady we all know the the harry potter lady yeah it's it's frustrating because i mean i was just i went on um megan kelly's show last week controversially but it, it actually wasn't combative or controversial at all. It was a very easy conversation where I just said the things that I believe about socialism, and she was like, "Okay," and it was fine. I didn't see. I didn't see the controversy in this. I mean, was it a podcast? It was a podcast. Or? It was a, on her oh, podcast. Okay. 
the only tension was what she kind of wanted me to have a conversation about cancel culture, which we clearly didn't have time for in the 30 minutes. Right. And it's not mm-hmm. that I'm against having it, but my feeling about it is that there are, if you talk about discrete instances, I might agree with you here or there that like that person should have been fired and that was an overreach. And, you know, it's, but when you call it, you know, when you pretend like there's a one big giant thing that you can lump everything under, I'm very reluctant to say, like, I'm not going to co-sign the idea that there's a problem because some of those firings were legitimate and it's a it's case by case issue. And it was frustrating to me because I think that it was right for a really good conversation. We could have had that conversation. And I think that people on the right and people on the left need to be having that conversation in tandem because we seem more credible if we're willing to point to the fact that we understand that there are instances where people are being treated unfairly in a systemic way, but it's not going to be someone trying to bring me down because I said, yes, cancel culture is real to Megyn Kelly. And it's because she doesn't think that, you know, Santa Claus should be black or whatever. <laughs> Which is a conversation well, I also would have loved to have had with her. <laughs> I think her position is it's just factually untrue that Santa is black. And by the way, for all you kids watching at home, Santa just is white. But this person is just arguing that that maybe we should we should also have a black Santa. But you know, Santa is what he is. And just so you know, we're just debating this because someone wrote about it, kids. It's a very interesting. Uh, I, I actually remember having a discussion like this in like my. Uh, I want to say it was my like metaphysics class. Like, what are the properties of fictional characters? And what, what you know, can, is a, can a fictional character have a race? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a very interesting question. Yeah, well, in my house, as in many black households, the line is, I bought the presents, your dad says, and I'm black. So no white man is going to take credit for giving you these presents. Yeah, I think that about does. It. <laughs> I think I think that's a good and I think that's a good one to end on. Do you, do you feel good about it, Bree? I feel pretty good about it. Do you feel good yeah, about got, it, Matt? <laughs> yeah, I think so. We got we got a lot of content. So we got a lot of content. We got we got a lot of newer content. Out. I think <laughs> I think we got the we metabolized the newer stuff. We got it out of our system, <laughs> and we can move on. And in future episodes, do the you know like come on the real nominees. You know the the real ones: Secretary, Defense, Treasury. You know the, the actual ones. Yeah, you, I mean she kind of got a shit job, really. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. Well, do we feel like it was a distraction? Are we? Is this is this bait? And we all took no, it. That's no, all, like, that's all like that's all that's all like people being conspiratorial nobody cares enough about this shit (laughs) for it to be a distraction of course you know people like us were gonna be pissed about it because she's actually harassed us personally (laughs) she's personally harassed every person on this damn pod she's probably harassed our producer too i don't even know she posts 12 14 freaking hours a day and she's always just going not a good look whenever anyone (laughs) says any left thing that's her whole mo and that's what she's gonna be doing at the office of management and budget she's gonna be posting 14 hours a day because it's a nothing job. This deficit, not a good staff. luck. <laughs> I will say chief of staff, that is a real one where you do have to be competent. Like you mm. do have to like wake up on time and be yeah. places because that's your job <laughs> is to make sure the president is placed. That's why all of Trump's chief of staffs have freaking failed because it's a hard job. Mm. But if you're like, you know, Secretary of Defense, or, or how about HUD Secretary? <laughs> you can just hang out for four years. <laughs> yeah. Ben Carson, easiest gig in the world. But who knows? Neera Tandon, you know, she's a rising star. She's a, 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 a credit to, to women of color everywhere. They're all <laughs> like, Brie, you're so proud and happy. I'm and, very proud you know, who knows? It's, it's, it's Office of Management and Budget today. Health and human services tomorrow. <laughs> well, they had, they had a, a woman of color in the head of, uh, well, I guess it was CMS. Uh, Seema, 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 I forget her last name, but, uh, you know, 
So that's already been accomplished. Of course, what she did at CMS was um, allow states to cut Medicaid benefits to people who uh, don't work enough. So there you so go. So there you go. All, well, there, well, there you go. All the barriers have been uh, broken. All the glass ceilings have been shattered. I'm, We're done. We did I'm it, gang. I'm going to revise my resume because the sky is the limit for me now. <laughs> Matt Brunick, thank you so much. And I think I think you're going to want to you're going to want to give a plug to our audience. Oh yeah, uh, well yeah. I mean, so you know, if you want to, you want to support the think tank, just go to peoplespolicyproject.org, and you can see uh, various options there. Um, and if you, uh, you know, like uh, like how I podcast, I have a podcast with my wife Elizabeth Brunig uh, called The Brunigs. You just go to Patreon.com/slash/TheBrunigs. Check out both those things. I subscribe to. I'm a, I'm, I'm a donor to the People's Policy Project, as you, as you may know. I've been a donor for uh, since the beginning, and I've been getting such great policy in my in my inbox. That's great. You can run I, it in your like uh, Sim City, you know, and you know, win the game that way. So, and we really do need institutions like this. So, definitely, if you have the means, check out People's Policy Project. Absolutely, it is good. Brewery. It's really good stuff. I, you know, and sh- you definitely should follow Matt too, because I mean. Uh, the pushback that you're able to give as like a knowledgeable wonk in areas where everyone wants to out wonk you and pretend that um, the left is just stupid and uninformed and puerile like you're a real a real balm to my soul Matt so thank you for what you do yeah he's he's smart and puerile (laughs) (laughs) that's a great combination follow Matt Bruning you can do that for free and who knows what he's gonna say who knows where he's gonna get fired next it's that's the free content that we put out to you, the listener, even if you don't have the means to, to subscribe to the show, which this is a premium episode, so I don't have to plug it. Thank you for subscribing to Bad Faith. <laughs> See All you right. next time. Keep, Thanks. Keep the faith. Bandit Car!